This week on Life and Faith. For those of us who may be experiencing the proverbial midlife crisis or who may be feeling lost or stranded, Dante is reminding us that the midway point is the beginning of the epic. The middle is always the beginning of a new adventure. We see people that are desperate to do the opposite. There was animosity, but there was great love as well. And I think it's been disastrous for our national health. The truth is it makes you a happier person. What are you seeking? What is your life for? Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And today's episode is about a book that's more than 700 years old and that has had a bigger influence on how we think and talk today than most of us realise. It's a very familiar scene when Dante arrives at the gates of the inferno, the gates of hell. We know the quote that's written above the gate, Abandon all hope ye who enter here. And that stuck with me because Dante is just so involved in our cultural zeitgeist. I was looking back over my Twitter feed from the last five years earlier this morning and without having read Dante, those five years where I've been able to make different Dante jokes about hell, mostly about getting stuck in Ikea on a Sunday. This is Matt. He and I and a bunch of other people have been part of a Facebook group for the last six months or so of people reading along together, one canto, one kind of chapter at a time, The Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri. Yes, it was 700 years last year since Dante's death, and Baylor University in Texas, together with other academics from all over the place, ran the world's largest Dante reading group with videos every couple of days to walk people through this, what's a quite a long and complicated but very affecting poem. I started this, Natasha, and I'm going to keep <laughs> going, but I am a, a long way behind. But I feel like I need to do this slowly, so other people might feel the same way. But the yes. project was called 100 Days of Dante. I know you got right into this, Natasha. How did you find it? <laughs> Um, I did get into it, not as much as some people in the group. I definitely fell behind at points. And it's not 100 consecutive days, like it's kind of a few cantos a week. Yeah, that's good. Which was a little more manageable. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I found it a fascinating experience, definitely epic. (laughs) Um, I have had this copy of Dante on my shelf, a beautiful copy for years. And I attempted it once years ago and gave up pretty quickly. Mm. Um, It is a challenging poem. It takes some getting into, but so many people talk about how it changed their life, how even saved their life. And so I think reading it with other people, some of whom I know, some I've never met, but we've been doing this for six months now. And I think that really made it possible and meaningful to keep going and to really get stuff out of it. So I thought we should do an episode on it. Yeah, look, uh, my wife's so into Dante. I feel like I know Dante really well, even though I have to. She'd say it changed her life. She does say that. And uh, I would attest to it too, like in in really positive ways. So, you know, my kids sort of roll their eyes now every time Michelle mentions Dante. Oh, no, (laughs) here we go again. But look, lots of people have this experience, don't they? Now, something that has become evident to me for sure is how many writers are influenced by Dante. So people like T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, for sure, and contemporary writers like George Saunders. They're very much in a conversation with Dante. 
So we're going to hear from a few of your fellow reading group members today, Natasha, including Matt, who we just heard from then, but also an expert on Dante from Biola University. That's Professor Jane Kim. She's going to help us understand what the Divine Comedy is all about. Yes, she's one of the academics who contributed to the 100 Days of Dante material. Uh, And she's really one of those people who brings very complex things within reach. So we'll get her to explain what the Divine Comedy actually is. It's an epic poem that is divided into three sections, the Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. And it's actually structured by threes throughout. Each section has 33 cantos, which are like chapters. And there's one extra introductory canto in the Inferno so that there are 100 cantos total. Each canto has three-line tercets, uh, which are stanzas. And Dante actually invents a new rhyme scheme called the terzarima, which means uh, rhyming tercets. And the rhyme scheme, it goes A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, so that each terset interlocks with the terset that precedes and follows it by rhyme. And so it's kind of this progression, two steps forward, one step back kind of progression. It's this Uh, movement forward by way of recapitulation. And there's so many other ways in which threes figure prominently throughout the work. And all of the threes are meant to point to the theological mystery of the Christian God as a triune God, three in one and one in three, um, which is part of the ultimate revelation of the divine at the end of the paradise. And so it is this journey, as the names of the three main sections indicate it is one man's journey through hell, then purgatory and paradise through the afterlife and all that he encounters and experiences there. So it's complicated, but Professor Kim thinks there are some very good reasons for us to read Dante today. First of all, it's just such a masterpiece. Um, It really is unparalleled in the beauty of its language, in its scope. It draws together almost all arenas of knowledge, poetry, philosophy, theology, history, the sciences, physics, astronomy, geology. It's such a rich conversation, whatever your interest may be. But I think ultimately what draws people to the Divine Comedy, Christians and unbelievers alike, is that he is dealing with fundamental human questions about love, about friendship, justice, and suffering. And he is also dealing with the kind of inescapable, enduring questions of, is the soul immortal? What happens to the soul after death? How do we think about eternity and immortality and divinity? I often think of the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, says that God has put eternity into the human heart. And so it presents this really interesting paradox of the human condition, which is that to be human means to long for that which goes beyond the human, goes beyond mortal limits. Um, And I think Dante is dealing with that paradox of how do we think about death and eternity and God and the human. And he invents a word, he invents many words, Dante's neologisms, but he invents a word uh, which is transhumanize. He says, at the beginning of the paradise, he is transhumanized so that he can be given the capacity to receive something that transcends 
human understanding so that he can be capable of receiving visions of heaven. But for him, I believe transhumanizing doesn't mean leaving behind your humanity, but it's actually being restored to what humanity was intended for and is destined for. So in a way, it is a going beyond humanity in order to fully understand what is the human. And so I think reading Dante is, to use his word, a very transhumanizing experience because as we follow him on this journey of the afterlife, we get to explore and even exceed kind of the bounds of the normal human experience. But all the while, we're considering and thinking about what does it mean to be fully human. I asked Professor Kim which book is her favorite, Inferno, Purgatorio, or Paradiso. That's what they're called in the Italian, of course. So that's hell, purgatory, or heaven, paradise. Also, whether she has a favorite moment in the poem. I think Purgatory is my favorite. Um, Purgatory takes place on Earth. Mount Purgatory is located on Earth, and it's the most relatable area, I think. There we see people who are suffering, but also who are being trained and restored and rehabilitated. And so there is hope in Purgatory, and there is this sense of joy and of expectation and of longing. My favorite image, and there's so many beautiful and striking images from the Divine Comedy, but my favorite comes from a canto in Purgatory where we meet a poet named Statius, who is also a huge fan of Virgil's. And when he comes to Dante and Virgil, and when he comes to recognize and learn and discover who Virgil is, he tells him, through you I became a poet, and through you I became a Christian. Which is so strange, because... Okay, we can understand how he would become a poet, but Virgil himself is a pagan poet. So how is it that Virgil would have influenced him to find Christianity? And Statius tells him, you are like one who carries a lamp behind your back so that though you yourself walk in darkness, the path behind you and those who follow you are illuminated. Um, and I just find that to be such a beautiful image, such a poignant image. And I think it speaks to the power of poetry and of literature to awaken the soul and stir the soul to higher thoughts and feelings about spirituality, about faith, about wisdom. C.S. Lewis says something very similar where he says that it's the romantic poets who inspired in him longings without which it would have made his conversion to Christianity much more difficult. So I love this image of poetry and of literature as stirring the soul, awakening the soul, inspiring the soul to long for higher things and to long for faith. So let's hear from some of the people in the reading group that I was part of for 100 Days of Dante. Uh, this is Laura. She is an English teacher as well as a PhD student. And this was not her first encounter with the Divine Comedy. So I read Dante as an undergrad but I barely remember any of that experience. I don't remember enjoying it. I just remember doing the minimum necessary to count as having done the assignment. I'm not sure why, like I had a good professor and I was a literature student, so it should have been right up my alley, but it just didn't click. But then in the last few years, I noticed that some of my favorite contemporary writers kept mentioning Dante here and there as if it was some like amazing secret. 
I was getting the sense, I think I missed something the first time. I have FOMO, so I was feeling <laughs> a little bit like, I think I need to go back and see what I, what I missed the first time around. So then when the reading group came up, just with the accountability of a reading schedule and the help of people who knew and loved the poem, it's like, yeah, I think that sounds really great. I asked Laura about her favorite Dante moment as well. The scene in Inferno, when Dante and Virgil reached the pit of hell, that's another scene that stayed with me, just like Satan enclosed in ice. Just this like such cold, dark image. It's just the complete opposite of what we normally think about with Satan in culture. If I think about TV and film and pop culture media, the norm right now is to portray evil as something that's exciting and alluring really interesting. (laughs) And so then to have Dante be like, actually, what if it's the most boring thing in the world? (laughs) Satan trapped in ice and he can't even move or do anything. I've been thinking about that just as I watch and engage with the different portrayals of evil around me, thinking, what if they're wrong? What if pursuing pleasure and rebellion, what if it's not actually exciting? (laughs) What if it's just really boring? When someone invited Matt to read Dante as part of a group, he was sceptical at first, but he says he has found the process transformative. I think it's in the top five books I've read in my life. Dante builds this picture of a a universe, a cosmos that's driven at every level and in every facet by God's overarching, inexhaustible, deathless love, which I, I really didn't expect I remember picking up Dante as an 18-year-old. I just started my arts degree. Figured this is something I should probably buy as an art student. Never read it. Just sat on the bookshelf there and... Looking good. Yeah, looking good. Trying to impress people. (laughs) And very impressively unread. I think I I figured that there'd be lots of weird medieval discussions around purgatory and saints and that there was nothing really in it for me. And so I just sat on the bookshelf for 19, 20 years. Dante is very much a person of his time and it's a book of its time, but it's so much more than that. And particularly in 2021, reading through it in the middle of lockdown, it was beautiful. I think it was really enriching for me. I'm really thankful I picked it up in the end. Matt reckons that the Divine Comedy is essentially about what the universe is all about, love. What you meet in Inferno, in Hell, are people whose love has gone unabated. They love good things too much or they loved in the wrong way or they betrayed love and then you find in purgatorio people who aren't frightened they aren't fearful in purgatorio they're being driven on by fear to reach the heavens and reach the divine to have that vision of being face to face with god and then in paradisio the final part of the comedy these people who are just gripped by this ultimate love of of knowing and, and being known by god such that dante describes this picture of paradisio that there are different levels in heaven, but there's no discontent for people who are in the lowest levels of heaven compared to the upper levels of heaven. They're just so deeply content and, and satisfied in being gripped and, know, and known by that love. And I think something that stuck with me the whole way through that Dante's trying to get to grips with what love is and what it looks like. And Dante wrote the comedy riffing off some of the his contemporary poets who had different ideas about love. One of his old mentors says that love is too destructive, it, it will destroy you. But Dante gives this other 
picture of love, I think, that love can destroy you and you meet, meet multiple people in the inferno who are destroyed by love. But throughout the comedy, this sense of God's love as this transformative healing thing that sustains the universe and when you encounter it, it totally changes your life. Lauren, like Laura, is an English teacher, but she came at Dante from a different angle to Laura and Matt. I had quite a, what I would call a sort of dialectical reading experience with Dante, that I come from an atheist uh, and feminist perspective. I did have moments where I would have to put the text down because my own personal frustration or sometimes anger would get in the way of me actually engaging with what really is an incredible work of art. So, uh, yes, it was personally interesting in that way because I had to overcome a lot of my own biases, I suppose, in, in reading and appreciating it and also be comfortable with holding that dialectical position and not feeling as though I needed to silence or remove myself or put the work down but to actually recognize where it came from and also the reading group helped me with that because I was able to actually experience contemporary perspectives that found such profound value in the work. Lauren's favorite bit comes early on in the inferno with the tragic story of Francesca and Paolo illicit lovers and these were real people in 13th century Italy who were murdered by Francesca's husband, uh, who was also Paolo's brother, when he found them together. It was Canto 5, the first time. I just remember reading. Uh, so Canto 5 is the second circle of hell where we hear, and it describes like the wailing of the lustful as such. So, um, and a great demonstration of um, contrapasso and the principle there of justice in which the punishment must fit the crime. And yet here, my sort of romantic mind <laughs> completely transformed that. So, so the idea is you have um, those that have committed the sin of lust are caught up in a whirlwind, literally caught up in a whirlwind, and they're condemned for eternity to be stuck in that whirlwind. And that literal whirlwind is a, is a metaphor for their lustful ways itself, so irrational one that's ultimately seeing them um, punished here in the second circle. And yet I found the image so profoundly romantic, the idea that that Francesca um, and her lover, and I know she's such an unreliable narrator in herself, and I know we're supposed to see this woman and her lover as damned, and yet I just gasped. I remember thinking... Oh, how romantic. Well, it turns out I'm not the only one. So I went on a little bit of a research journey there and I saw The Kiss by uh, Rodin, I think it is, the statue there. And I thought, I've seen that statue and, and that's what it is. So certainly I'm not sure if that is a very much a conditioned response to the idea of a whirlwind where it has been taken out of, of that context because this idea of, of lust is something that is exciting and thrilling uh, seems to obviously be a very uh, modern interpretation but yes it was a moment for me that I gasped and I did reread that a few times. <laughs> You're listening to Life and Faith from CPX and we're devoting this episode to the 700 year old Italian poet Dante. Now his poem The Divine Comedy is one of the great books and we're trying to understand why so many people have found it so compelling. 
Oh, I actually have a theory about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, what is it? I mean, it's probably not a completely original theory. Many people have had this thought, but I did have it genuinely, independently. Um, mm. From reading the poem and also from reading other people's responses to it, it seems to me that Dante is all about the midlife crisis. Yes, exactly. That, I mean, this is something people talk a lot about. But, you know, given that I'm past my midlife crisis... <laughs> It also seems to fit whatever stage in life you're at where you've come to a kind of a crossroads perhaps or a sense of something ending. Perhaps life's not entirely going the way you thought it might. Yeah, which kind of fits with where Dante was at himself, um, mm. writing the Divine Comedy. He was in or had gotten past his own what you might call midlife crisis. So in 1302, uh, Dante found himself on the losing side of a battle between two political factions uh, and was exiled from his beloved city of Florence. So he wrote the comedy over the following years as kind of a wanderer going from town to town, living in other people's houses. So you really get the feeling with Dante the author, Dante the pilgrim, like the character in yeah. the poem, and then for all of us that it's about or it's for people who are feeling a bit lost and a bit bruised by life. You know, it hasn't turned out the way they thought it would. Um, and the poem is really a kind of take stock. What is life actually all about? What kind of person do I want to be? That kind of book. It really is that, isn't it? And he was on his own. It's, it's a bit of a bitterness to this. And yet uh, he's processing a lot of the things that he's lost. I think coming to some degree of peace about that. Now, did Professor Jane Kim agree with your assessment of this? Like I think she did. I don't think she was just humoring me. <laughs> she points out that actually in the series Mad Men, which to be honest, neither of us had actually seen, but there's a point where Don Draper, the main character, mm. is shown to be reading The Inferno. There's a suggestion that he himself is going through a midlife crisis. But the reference, I think, is from the famous opening Tercet of The Inferno, which reads midway along the journey of our life. I woke to find myself in a dark wood, for I had wandered off from the straight path. So by midway along the journey of our life, um, he's telling us that he's 35 years old, which is young <laughs> to be having a midlife crisis. But he's referring to the biblical number of 70 years as a full lifespan. And so he's at this kind of symbolic midway point of his life. And he's also evoking the convention, the literary convention of in medias res, uh, which in Latin means into the middle of things. And it's Homer who initiates this convention where he begins his epics in the midst of things, in the thick of things. So the Iliad opens with the Trojan War already well underway. The Odyssey opens with Odysseus already having completed much of his journey. And I think we see this convention also kind of in contemporary films where we open onto like an action sequence, say, for example. And later, as the story progresses, we're told through flashback or through dialogue between characters how we got there. And it's a sense of not wasting time to set up what the story is, but just throwing ourselves into it. So it's kind of a midpoint in two ways in that we find ourselves in the dark wood. And we don't know how we've gotten there. So that's in the sense of the plot narrative. We're kind of thrown into the middle of things. And then also in terms of the narrative of the life of the protagonist, he's also at this kind of symbolic midway point. And it's not just the life of Dante, but it's also representative of a kind of shared 
collective life, right? Midway along the journey of our life, there's a sense of he is exemplary of some aspect of our human experience. And I think he gives us a wonderful example and model of what to do when we find ourselves kind of lost and disoriented. He seeks help from his first and favorite teacher, Virgil, the great Roman poet, and he submits himself to his guidance. And he turns his heart back to his first love, Beatrice, the love of his childhood. And he sets out on this journey of self-reflection and repentance, which is ultimately a journey to God. And so I think for those of us who may be experiencing the proverbial midlife crisis or who may be feeling lost or stranded, Dante is reminding us that the midway point is the beginning of the epic. The middle is always the beginning of a new adventure. So I think there's a hopeful message in that. It's fascinating to me that so many people I've spoken to about Dante said that they tried to read it when they were young and couldn't get into it, but that it had been captivating for them in their 30s or older. There's something about the messy middle of life that Dante really speaks into. Here's Matt, Lauren and Laura again. A bit of a heads up here. There is a bit of noise on the recording at the end. Just bear with us. I'm really glad I didn't try to read it when I was 18. I wouldn't have got it, I don't think. There's something about having been through life a bit more, growing up a bit more. I had to do a bunch of maturing emotionally and so on. And I think just being aware of how messy and broken life gets, I think it helps you to read it and understand it at a, and appreciate it at a different level compared to an 18-year-old. I read it when I was, well, started reading it when I was, 36, 37, so just two years on from when Dante sets it. He's 35 and lost in the wood, having his own little midlife crisis. And um, I was 37, which is the same age Dante was when he was exiled from Florence, never to return. So there was some sort of resonance there, I think. But the age and also the circumstances around COVID and the kind of the listlessness, it helped resonate at a level that wouldn't have worked when I was younger. What the reading group highlighted to me, and I think this, this is the, the marks of a great work, is that it opens up so much space for dialogue and discourse. And I really enjoyed that as well. I enjoyed being part of something that was um, at a time of lockdown when obviously our, our dialogue itself is, is relatively limited. We're spending a lot of time online. We're spending a lot of time in our, in our own spaces. So for Dante to be able to do that and to continue to open that up from lots of different perspectives, I think was just incredible. So no, it was a, a wonderful read. Um, I think we'll continue to feed into what I do every day continually made me turn to myself, like from the text to myself and ask, well, who am I? These are all the people that he's exploring and, and getting into, yeah, human nature and psychology, what it means to be a human. What about me? <laughs> where do I, where do I fit? Yeah, it's a really good experience. Any answers to those questions that you've arrived at that you're willing to share? I think that question is one that, yeah, we can ask our whole lives. I wouldn't say that I found the answer, <laughs> but there's a particular moment at the beginning of Purgatorio and Dante reaches a place by the sea and he describes himself as like those who think about the journey they will undertake, who go in heart, but in the body stay. So he's like 
thinking about, I want to keep going up Mount Purgatory, but I'm, I'm staying here. And he even, he meets this man, a fellow pilgrim, and he asks him to sing for him. And so he's singing and they're just all like, oh, this is so nice, enjoying the singing at the bottom of Mount Purgatory. And then this old man comes along and is like, what are you doing? <laughs> Stop singing and get moving. Like, you're not going to be able to see God if you stay right here. I mean, it's not a very dramatic scene compared to a lot of the inferno with all the horrible things that are happening to people. But I, I felt like he was speaking to me in that rebuke. I'm not quite middle-aged. I'm 35, so I'm getting there. <laughs> but I think there can be this sense of, I don't know, slowing down or maybe like a decrease in purpose or passion, especially in the spiritual life. I found it can be really easy to seek after the things that make me comfortable and content and resist the things that are difficult. Maybe like this sense of Dante, like, oh, I've just been through Inferno. I've earned a little bit of rest, right? Leave me alone and let me enjoy the music for a bit. Yeah, but I'm thinking about that scene in Purgatory just made me think about what's the difference between the rest that I need and that God gives generously versus a self-indulgence and pleasure-seeking for pleasure's sake. And also just like the difference between diligence, like Dante, you know, diligently climbing Mount Purgatory, as opposed to this like frenetic busyness, which I'm very guilty of, that looks like progress, that looks like movement, but it's actually just like a spinning in circle. Before we conclude here, it's worth acknowledging that Dante is not the easiest read. It is really long. Um, It's full of a bunch of references from like 13th century Italian politics and lots of other things. I asked Professor Kim on behalf of us all if she has any tips for people wanting to embark on this journey. It is not an easy read for sure. And I still feel I have read it a few times now and I still feel like each time I wonder if I ever understood it before (laughs) Um, in some ways. So the practical tip is to follow along with the footnotes. There's a lot of just scholarship that is done for you there. But what I would tell readers also who are intimidated maybe by the poem is that it is such an intensely personal poem for Dante. He creates and names the main protagonist of the poem Dante. (laughs) So we, we often have to distinguish between Dante the poet and Dante the pilgrim, as he's known, but inevitably and evidently they are linked. And he invests the poem with his own loves and his losses, stories of his own traumas, stories of his friends, his enemies, his ancestors. And so because he is so personal in what he brings to the poem, we can't help but also experience him in a very personal way and have a very personal connection with Dante as we read. And Dante, I think, models this for us because he shows us his relationship with Virgil, who is his favorite author. And he has Virgil guide him through the really difficult parts of the journey. And Virgil, he calls my teacher, my father. We see Virgil carrying him through, physically carrying him sometimes. And we understand what it is to have a relationship with an author that is fostered through a text that is highly emotional. And um, I think through the experience of reading Dante, we find that we also kind of develop that same kind of attachment, emotional attachment to Dante as our teacher and as our guide. I've also found just in my own personal experience and what I've heard from others, 
that Dante kind of finds us in hard times. I remember first reading Dante in its entirety, uh, the Divine Comedy in its entirety as a graduate student. And I don't know how your experience of grad school was, <laughs> Natasha, um, but if I think back to my own experience, I mean, the, you know, there are moments of darkness and it can be a very solitary and lonely experience. And I remember finding in Dante just such a source of comfort and of inspiration, of wonder, of hope. And more recently, I've come back to Dante in these past couple years in light of the big anniversary year, uh, 700 years after Dante's death. And that anniversary also happened to overlap with much of the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I remember coming to uh, Dante just feeling, you know, lost and a bit hopeless, a bit depressed, and finding again his solace and his guidance and his message of hope. So I think, yes, he is such a mind that he will inevitably intimidate, but yet also he is incredibly tender and gentle, I think, as Virgil is with him. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Uh, special thanks today to Professor Jane Kim from Biola University for opening up Dante for us, and also to Matt, Laura, and Lauren for sharing their experiences as Dante readers. If you're considering giving Dante a go yourself, we strongly recommend the 100 Days of Dante project as a way of going about it. All the videos and other materials are available online for free at 100daysofdante.com. That's the number 100 Days of Dante. I would also personally recommend gathering a few other people at least to read along with. It makes a huge difference to kind of go on this pilgrimage together. Do share this episode with friends you think might be interested. Maybe they're literary types or maybe they're in a bit of a midlife crisis themselves. Leave us a rating and a review if you haven't done that already. And remember, you can email us with feedback, suggestions, maybe anecdotes about your experience of life and faith at podcast at publicchristianity.org. Next week. It's part of being human. They have some sense that something can happen to them or to their other members of their species, which is very bad and which sort of ends their lives. Maybe other animals can have that. I mean, animals do seem to mourn the loss of their partners, but they don't live in the fear of that loss as far as we can tell.